Good morning, everyone. Welcome to What Life Community Church. So lately, I've been listening to an audiobook, and the audiobook is Ladies and Gentlemen. And I was really struck by a story that occurred at the beginning of the book that really set the tone for the rest of the novel. Um, what happens is the novel centers around a figure named Jean Valjean, and he's an ex-convict. Um, and he was sent to the galley, which is where they like row and bottom boat. And he was there for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And he's been recently released. Uh, he was given a small sum of money and sent on his way. He goes on the back with a tiny amount of money. And he's walking along this road. He's trying to get to the nearest uh, town, trying to make his way to where he's from originally. And it's cold out. He hasn't eaten all day. The sunset, and he finally arrives in his town. And he goes to the nearest inn, and he says, hey, I can pay, despite uh, the way I might be looking right now. I can pay. Uh, she me a place to stay and give me some food. I'm sorry. And the innkeeper says, yeah, sure. But then he hears that he's an ex-cop. And so the innkeeper uh, is not on. Yeah, so then the innkeeper, uh, oh, there we go. <laughs> so then the innkeeper uh, turns him out and says, no, we don't have a place for you here. Go, leave. And so Jean Valjean is not only like starving and hungry and cold, but he's also now ashamed. He's been publicly shamed in front of everyone and he's embarrassed, but he goes to the next inn because he's desperate. And the same thing happens there. Word is traveling. Then he goes to random houses and he's knocking on doors and he's like, just give me a place to stay. It's cold out and I'm really, really hungry. I promise I, I'm not dangerous. But one by one, everyone kicks him out after they hear that he's an ex-convict. And then in desperation, he even tries to sleep in a kennel with a bunch of dogs. But even the dogs won't let him sleep with them. So then he shows up at this church and he goes to a little house cottage right next to it, knocks on the door, thinking there's no way they'll accept him because everyone else has rejected him. And he's welcomed in and there's a priest there and they're in the middle of eating their dinner. And Jean Valjean doesn't even ask if he can eat, he just starts telling his story right away because he doesn't want to get invited in and then people find out he's an ex-convict and then get shamed again and have to leave. He doesn't want the hope, his hopes to go up and down like that. So he just immediately starts sharing his story. He's like, my name's Jean Valjean, I was an ex-convict but I promise I'm not dangerous, I stole a loaf of bread. And then before he's even finished, the priest says, yeah, monsieur, sir, mister, come sit with us, eat with us, you can spend the night. And Jean Valjean is absolutely like struck, just blown away. He can't believe it. And what's really interesting is what he's blown away by is not necessarily the food or the place to stay. He's blown away by the fact that the priest is calling him monsieur because that's a term of respect. Even in our culture, mister is a term of respect, but back then, 150 years ago, it, it had even a bigger meaning than it does today. It's been a little bit watered down. So he's like, Here, he says, you, a priest, are calling me an ex-convict monsieur. And he's just blown away, and something starts changing within him. And from that night onward, Jean Valjean starts to change, and he, he starts to try to help people. He starts to humanize the people around him. And there's ups and downs, especially right after the story. There's a few downs before the story starts on the up and up a little bit. But uh, the, his whole life has changed by that moment when somebody humanized him and showed him respect. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how that bishop, that priest, humanized and respected him, not only by giving him food and a place to stay, but by treating him with dignity. We've been going through this series called Faithful Presence, and we've looked at the faithful presence of God throughout 
history from the beginning of time to the end of time. We looked at faithful presence of God in the Eucharist, in the communion, the Lord's table, or Lord's Supper. Uh, we looked at the faithful presence of God uh, in the proclamation of the gospel and in reconciliation. And today, we're looking at the faithful presence of God in the least of these. And just, uh, just so you know, this is a huge topic, as you're probably aware. Uh, this isn't something you can really cover in 30 minutes <laughs> very easily. So I'm going to hit on different um, aspects of it. My goal is to, to challenge you, to encourage you, maybe provoke some discussions with your family, with me, with your friends. I would love to hear what your thoughts are after this. And I won't be able to touch on all the nuances in terms of uh, like when to do things well, when to not, what are um, boundaries and all that. I, I just won't be able to talk on all that. And I think this is also a good conversation to have right now because it's fresh in people's minds. There's been a, a lot of conversation the past few weeks because of a documentary that was released uh, called Seattle's Dying that caused a lot of people to start asking questions. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of people about that documentary and also we're noticing that homelessness is, has been increasing in Seattle. So it, it's on everyone's minds and so this, is, this comes at a good moment. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. And I will also have it up on the screen. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be with us today. Encourage us, convict us. May we know that you are present with us no matter what is going on. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, of these brothers, sorry, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Wow. <laughs> Story's a little bit jarring, or that, that parable's a little bit jarring. It, it really screams at you, and I think that's the point of it. It's screaming, wake up! Don't be comfortable. Don't be comfortable with hurt and pain around you. Don't be comfortable with poverty. Don't get used to it. And Jesus is really fond of hyperbolic language. For example, in one passage he says, um, in order to follow me, you've got to hate your mother and father. <laughs> so we know that he literally doesn't mean that because he also tells us to love, love everyone. Um, so I think there might be a little bit of hyperbole in this language, in this, in this story, but there's also him trying to get across the point that taking care of the least of these is incredibly important. In fact, it's a way of communicating and being with 
Jesus. Um, and also this term, the least of these, uh, you know, we, we're trying, in our culture nowadays, we're really sensitive to language and terms and how we uh, refer to people. For example, uh, I grew up in Africa, and it used to be countries that were called like third world countries, and it was developing countries, and then under, or underdeveloped and developing. Now the more humanizing term is uh, majority world countries. And so we might hear this term, least of these, and it sounds a little bit derogatory, right? And I don't think that's the case because Jesus is not using it in a derogatory sense. He's using it in a self-identifying sense. He's saying he is the least of these. And so it's not, it's a, it's a term of, of what is happening, but it's also, he's also dignifying it because he's standing in solidarity with the least of these. And we're going to touch on that uh, a little bit later. Uh, so I see two major points in this passage. Uh, I see this theme of actions. So not just talking, but actually acting. <laughs> so you have people being uh, clothed, you have people being um, fed, and you have people, you have people visiting prisons, you have uh, people who are foreigners being taken care of, taking care of the sick, and a bunch of other actions as well. So there's this idea that doing things is important, and, and this isn't new with Jesus. Uh, the whole story of God, and especially in the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, and there are these wild dudes that sort of roamed around calling out people. Um, and they, they really uh, concentrated on this idea of taking care of the marginalized. And they talked about it in terms of the widow, the orphan, and the alien, or, or the foreigner. And that was a huge part uh, of the Israelites following God, was taking care of the marginalized in their community. And in fact, they ended up being exiled. And part of the reason why was because they weren't taking care of the people who needed it most in their society, and that really bothers God. He's on the side of those who are hurt and who are suffering. And then this is modeled by Jesus. Not only does he talk about it here, but you see him hanging out with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, uh, the woman at the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, the lepers, the people who had different skin diseases. He was always with the least of these. That was his mission. <laughs> And then the early church also took this up. They would have uh, offerings where people would sell their properties and give it to the apostles, and it would get distributed to the poor, and it said there was nobody needy even amongst them. Wow. Then another thing that I see really prominent in this passage is that Jesus has three different roles, right? Can you tell me there's the Son of Man, which is uh, referencing Daniel chapter seven, which is this idea of a, a human divine figure that sits on the throne with God and rules over the nations. So the son of man, then the king, sort of maybe like David, a, a messianic king, someone to bring God's kingdom and rule over. And then the third one is the least of these. So Jesus is really identifying with across the spectrum from being the ruler and king of the world to being at the bottom of society, the least of these. And, um, I think that this is most obviously seen, not only in his actions like we talked about, in terms of hanging out with the prostitutes, the woman at the well, the lepers, but also his whole mission. He was the son of God incarnate. <laughs> he left his place of privilege and entered into the brokenness of humanity. Entered into the pain. He was a refugee in Egypt. He was, he was probably made fun of for having a mother that had a child out of wedlock. He experienced um, betrayal at the hands of his disciples. He experienced public shame when the whole city of Jerusalem turned against him. And then ultimately, he stood in solidarity with the pain of the world by suffering on the cross. It was on the cross that he became our sin. He became our pain. He became our hurt. The king, the son of, the ma son of man, 
became the least of these on the cross. Um, and I think this is illustrated really, really well by this story by a guy named Eli Wiesel. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he um, is a Jewish person who was in the concentration camps in World War II. And he was in Auschwitz and he wrote a book called Night, which you might have read and heard of. And it chronicles um, him being brought into concentration camps as a teenage boy and him and his father. And it's called Night because he's exploring like, where is God in the midst of all this darkness? That's pretty much the whole theme of it, his story, his biography of being there, and how is God present in all of this. And there's this really, really haunting story that I just wanted to share with you. Um, and so what's happened is people get hung for no reason, and they'll force the other prisoners to walk by and look at the people being hung so that then they will be scared and will, and will submit to the prison guards. Um, and there's this one boy who he describes as being beautiful and a young teenage boy uh, who... Um, was innocent, is what he's trying to say, and he was being hung, and this is, what we're, this is the story it picks off at. The three condemned prisoners together stepped into the chairs, or onto the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men, but the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the capo. His voice quivered. As for the rest of us, we were weeping. Cover your heads. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging, hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. That night, the soup tasted of corpses. See, there's something mysterious about God, something that is beyond comprehension. God enters into pain. There's something weird about God being suffering with us. And like I said, it's like that on the cross where God took our suffering and embodied it and showed us what it means to be loved by the creator of the universe. And, you know, people will take this different direction. So some people will say, oh, you're suffering or you're poor, therefore you're being blessed by God, so I'm not going to help you out so you can stay in that condition. You know, people used to say that in the Middle Ages sometimes, and that's not right. Or some people will um, preach it as though that suffering is a gift from God, and he's giving it to us in order to experience him more. And I don't think that's correct either, because I think suffering is never, ever, ever what God desires. Pain is never, ever God's agenda. But it is the reality of the human experience. And the amazing thing is that God enters into it with us, not because he idealizes it, not because he desires us to experience it, but because he's a God that goes and journeys with us wherever we are at. And I think he's calling us to live in this manner. Uh, one one um, concept that uh, historians are always trying to figure out is how in the world did Christianity grow and take over the Roman Empire after a few hundred years? 
I mean, it, it was birthed in Jerusalem, which was sort of like in the middle of nowhere in the eyes of the Roman Empire. And it came out of a religion that nobody really respected at that time, Judaism. Um, and the Roman Empire, the way they function is they'd go conquer a, a, a place and then they would say, hey, you worship these gods, that's great. Then they'd incorporate it into the Roman pantheon. Um, but Christianity literally denied all the Roman pantheon. It refused to be incorporated into the Roman state religion or empire's religion. It, it, it spoke out against it. And it also believed in this idea of God becoming human, God entering into the material existence, which goes completely against all the philosophy of the day, which had a really sharp distinction between um, physical and spiritual, and spiritual was so much better, and physical was evil and nasty, and God would never deign to enter into our brokenness. So how in the world did Christianity grow? Um, And people have different theories, but one of the biggest ones is that it was composed of people Uh, that were the least of these. It set a trajectory from the life of Jesus where the people who were shown dignity were the people that the Roman Empire was oppressing and trying to squash down. And so they hear this story of somebody who isn't identifying with the wealthy and the philosophers and the intellectuals and the emperors and the kings, but is identifying with the slaves, with the women, with the children, with the poor. And so it grew like crazy. Uh, There's this quote from Justo Gonzalez, who's a church historian, uh, and he says this, uh, sociological studies indicate that the vast majority of Christians during the first three centuries belonged to the lower echelons of society. And then this is, I find this really fascinating. Uh, There's this guy named Celsus, and I think he was in the second or third century, and he wrote a treatise against Christianity. He was trying to tear it apart and talk about how dumb it is. And his reasons for it are pretty astounding. Um, So back then, women were considered subhuman. Children were considered subhuman. Um, And let's see what he says. In some private homes, we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers. That is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household, they dare not utter a word. But as soon as they can take the children aside or some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and the children to the women's quarters or to the cobbler shop or to the tannery and there you will learn the perfect life. It is thus that these Christians find those who will believe them. So the reason he doesn't believe in Christianity is because it was the people that everyone considered the least of these. They were the ones that were following it. And to him, that means that is a bunch of nonsense. And as I was contemplating this, what really struck me is, what has happened? I I mean, the Western church is the exact opposite. (laughs) And hear me when I'm saying, I'm not saying that if you have more money and um, and you're not struggling, that therefore you're not welcome in church. That's not what I'm saying. But back then, the people who felt most welcomed were the least of these. And now in, in Western society, the people who feel most welcomed are the middle class, the upper class, the wealthy, the people who quote unquote have their life together. What's happened? What have we done? Where have we gone wrong? I mean, according to Jesus, we've lost the ability to even find him (laughs) in our church because we're the body of Christ and yet we don't have people, and I'm not necessarily talking about one life, but just in general, we don't always have people who are um, marginalized in our society. So what has happened? And how can we change that? Why don't the least of these feel welcomed? And obviously this is a huge topic, um, but I do think it starts in one place and that's with you, with us, with individuals being agents of change. 
And one of the biggest things is just relationships. Um, hopefully you can see throughout this that just how important being with the least of these and taking care of the least of these is. It's not like some tertiary issue or even secondary. I really think it's a primary issue, a primary thing that God has called us to engage in. Um, and I, I also want to clarify that you can interpret the least of these as being all of us. We are all the least of these in some sense, right? I mean, we all have pain. We all suffer. We've all struggled with something. But I, do, I don't want to use that to water down the necessity of taking care of people who are poor, people who have lost their jobs, uh, widows, um, orphans. Uh, we can't use that as an excuse saying, oh, we all struggle, therefore we don't have to take care of these people at all. Um, but you just have to find that tension. And I don't quite know where that is, but just something to be aware of. Uh, and one thing that stands out from the early churches, they did everything through relationship. So in, in our church or in Western church, we tend to do it through programs. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'll give a bunch of money to this program. They'll hire a CEO, then whatever underneath them, then this person. Then there's like six levels before finances or help actually reaches somebody. And I recognize I'm not trying to critique those programs or anything like that, but there's an easier way to do it just for you. You don't have to get a master's in it. <laughs> I think it starts off with just one-on-one -on -one relationships. In, in the early church, it would be like, oh, my neighbor is really struggling, and she's a friend of mine. Um, oh, and she's also a friend of mine. Oh, cool, let's go help her out and um, take her food, take care of her kids, help them get educated, all that. It was all done through relationships. And whenever that's done, it humanizes the situation. Whenever it's distant, people tend to become projects. Just a number to count off. Someone that we don't always care about. And it was all community-oriented back then. And I think this is illustrated really, really well in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So if you turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31, that's Luke chapter 16. I also have it up on the screen. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn, warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Uh, and I recently came across an interpretation of this that really, really struck me and convicted me. Um, and so it starts off, you, you have to recognize the rich man is incredibly rich. He's like the Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos of our time. He has fine linen and purple clothing. That means he's incredibly wealthy. Uh, and Lazarus means God helps. And also it's the name of Jesus' best friend. 
In the Gospel of John, we hear the story of Lazarus, who uh, Jesus cares deeply about and ends up resurrecting him. Um, and also, some people believe, a lot of scholars, in the Gospel of John, it refers to this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Many people think that's actually Lazarus. Who, who is talking about that. Lazarus is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Lazarus was really close to Jesus's heart. And so what Jesus is saying here is the rich man was sort of being generous. I mean, he was letting the, the leper or the person with a skin disease sleep on his front porch, on his, at his gate, at his door. How many of us allow that? I mean, that's pretty incredible, especially back then where if you had any skin condition, you're considered contagious and unclean and you had to go outside the city. And this rich man probably had people walking by his door every day or coming into his house to do business deals or talk about things, wealthy, influential people. And yet he still allowed Lazarus to sit at his door. And so the question is, why did the rich man end up in Hades? And Leonard Sweet, uh, this missiologist, theologian, um, he says uh, the problem was the rich man thought God had only given him five brothers. But in reality, God had given him six. God had given him Lazarus, Jesus' best friend, the one who was hurt, the one who was covered in sores. He was right outside his door. And the rich man did not enter into relationship with him. I heard one time a story when I was in college. This pastor came to speak, and he talked about how they're trying to change their church around and uh, be more welcoming to people who are different than them um, and reach out more. And they start having like strippers and gang members coming to their church. And he said, it was just really exciting. Then he told this just really sad story. He said, one time this really wealthy businessman came up to him after service and said, hey pastor, um, I really, really uh, want to help out financially. I would like to give a thousand bucks to this lady over there. Um, and the pastor says, oh, that's so great. I'm so glad you're wanting to do that. Here, why don't I introduce you to her? Then you can talk to her, and then you can give her the money. And the, pa- and the guy's like, no, no, no. I don't have anything to do with somebody like her. I just want to give her money. And he talked about sort of that arrogance that was within him, that condescending attitude that refuses, refused to see the, the, the Jesus within her, <laughs> to refuse to recognize her humanity, and re- refuse to recognize that she was an image bearer. Because that's what happened with the rich man, I think. He just wanted to give something from a distance. So who has God put in your life to learn from? Who has God put in your life to learn from? And what are you doing about it? And if you can't think of anybody, come to dinner church. That's what we're all about, just sitting around a table um, and talking with each other. Just sitting across from each other, eating together, and hearing each other's stories. Every Monday, uh, whenever I speak, I, I start off by saying, um, here at the community dinner, we believe strongly in Jesus' number one command, which is to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we do that by sitting together, listening to each other, praying with each other, laughing with each other, crying together, and just living life alongside each other. Because I think that's what it's all about. So we're there every Monday in Magnuson Park from 5 to 6.30 if you'd like to join us. And, you know, I think this is also happening in our church. Obviously, we still have ways to grow and um, things we can change. But recently, uh, and I asked this person for permission to share this, but Pam, who was very, very sick for a few months, 
and she was in the hospital, then wasn't able to go back, but she was, it's a long story, but she was very sick and unable to take care of herself. And then the Youngs um, invited her over and she stayed with them for five nights. And then everyone starts showing up, like a physical therapist, Renee, showed up to help her out with like medical things and helping her get back on her feet. Uh, different people like with social work experience were helping her out. Some people just made food and were bringing it to her. Some people helped her buy groceries. Some people were just sitting by her bed and praying with her and just being present with her and listening to her. And whenever she moved back to her apartment, People kept on doing that for weeks. We're still doing that. Granted, not as often, but we are going and visiting regularly. And it was just this awesome time of not just, not that, so don't get me wrong. Giving money is not bad. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but trying to take it a little bit further and being a community that doesn't try and keep people distant, but actually welcomes and, and, and does it through relationship. And Pam, when I was asking her if I could share this story, uh, she wanted me to also clarify that she's so happy and um, she's been so blessed and she loves all of you dearly. She wanted to make sure I shared that with you all. And the final thing I wanted to talk about is, you might be somebody who's experiencing pain. You might be somebody who's experiencing loss. You might be somebody who's lost a job, who's struggling financially who's hurt, who's broken, who's feeling shame. And I want you to know that God has a love for you. The God that created this universe, the triune God, gravitates towards people who are in pain. It's the mystery of the universe. It's a sacred thing. And sacred sometimes gets misused in that it's like an ideal, amazing, beautiful thing. But sacred is when the infinite and the finite meet. It's when God and human come together. And it's not always beautiful the way we typically imagine it. Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's painful. That's the story of the cross. That was an ugly, ugly event that brought forth reconciliation of the whole world. And I just want you to know that God is with you. Jesus is for you. It is within his self-giving nature. That's what the Trinity is, right? It's, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, giving and loving and, and um, just reciprocal. And you know what's also amazing? If you look at John 17, it's not supposed to be confined to them. We're actually invited into that. Jesus talks about it. He's like, I and you and you and me and them and us. Really confusing language, but pretty much he's saying, we get invited into that love feast of the Trinity. And part of that is knowing and trying to experience God's presence in the midst of difficulty. And then also following in the way of the cosmos that God created and entering into the pain of others and being in relationship with them. At this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up and the prayer team. We're going to close with uh, one final song and some questions for you to think about. Um, and I'd love to talk to you afterwards as well or later on whenever you'd like. So here are the questions. Why do you think Jesus is found with the least of these? Are you intentionally in relationship with someone who is poor, hurt, or marginalized? Why or why not? What is one step you can take to embody what we have talked about today? Let's pray. God, thank you that you are with us in pain. It doesn't always feel like it, but I pray that we had all just experienced your love, your presence, your faithful, faithful presence with us. And I pray that we would embody that to everyone around us, that it wouldn't stop with just us, but it would spread to all of our areas of influence. 
that we would be intentional about incarnating into different people's hard experiences. I pray that if anybody here is experiencing pain, is in a bad place, Jesus, just be present with them. May they know your love this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.